0: Hi, this is Matt Baker and today we're going to look at the Book of Mormon as Literature. First of all, I'm going to show you the family tree of the main characters from the book and then I'll be discussing the book's origins in a similar manner to the videos I did on the Bible and the Quran. Now, in case you're new to this channel, I do want to point out that I am not a Mormon nor am I an ex-Mormon. What I am is a history educator with a PhD in Religious Studies. Therefore, please note that I'll be approaching the topic primarily from a secular, academic perspective, not from a faith-based perspective. So, with that said, let's jump in. When it comes to holy books, Judaism has the Tanakh, which is made up of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Christianity also uses the Tanakh but calls it the Old Testament. This is because Christianity has a second book, which it calls the New Testament. However, Mormonism takes things one step further. It uses both the Old and New Testaments and then adds to them a third book known as the Book of Mormon, subtitled Another Testament of Jesus Christ. The introduction of an entirely new set of scriptures is one of the reasons why some academics consider Mormonism to be a completely separate religion and not just another branch of Christianity. So, in a similar manner to how Christianity started out as a branch of Judaism but then eventually became its own religion, we might actually be witnessing a similar thing happening with Mormonism. In my video on the Quran, I talked about the fact that there were originally many different types of Christianities but that one type eventually won out. The technical term for this quote-unquote winner is Nicene Christianity, which basically means churches that believe that Jesus was in fact God and that he shares one essence with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, a doctrine known as the Trinity. So, even though there are many different branches of Christianity today, such as Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, etc., they all fall under the umbrella of Nicene Christianity. In contrast, Islam was likely influenced by one of the many non-Nicene types of Christianity that no longer exist, probably one that saw Jesus as the Jewish Messiah but not as God. In a similar manner, Mormonism is also based on one of the non-Nicene versions of Christianity, In this case, the type that sees Jesus as God but as being distinct, in essence, from God the Father. So basically, from the Mormon point of view, they would say that Nicene Christianity took the wrong path and that Mormonism represents the restoration of the correct, original path. Okay, I'm now going to quickly summarize the basic story arc of the Book of Mormon and I'm going to do so by showing you the family tree of the main characters from the book. It all starts with a man named Lehi who was an Israelite from the tribe of Manasseh. He, his wife Sariah and their first four sons were living in the kingdom of Judah just prior to its destruction by the Babylonians. The story begins with God warning Lehi and telling him to leave with his family and to go to a new land. So, they leave taking with them Lehi's friend Ishmael and Ishmael's family, who were from the tribe of Ephraim. But before they go, they also steal a set of brass plates containing their family's history from a man named Laban and because of this, Laban's servant Zoram ends up joining them as well. Anyway, along the way, Lehi and Sariah have two more sons, Jacob and Joseph. Ishmael dies but his children continue on the journey. Eventually in the year 589 BC, the group reaches an unknown location in the Americas. The sons of Lehi marry the daughters of Ishmael and the sons of Ishmael marry the daughters of Lehi. After Lehi dies, Nephi becomes the leader but this causes conflict with his two older brothers so eventually the settlers split into two groups the descendants of Laman and Lemuel, as well as the descendants of the sons of Ishmael, become known as the Lamanites, whereas the descendants of Sam, Nephi, Jacob, and Joseph become known as the Nephites. Basically, in most of the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites are portrayed as the bad guys and the Nephites as the good guys. But there are two other American people groups mentioned in the Book of Mormon the Jaredites and the Mulekites. According to the Book of Mormon, the Jaredites arrived in the Americas long before Lehi's group. They trace their descent from the family of a man named Jared who arrived shortly after the Tower of Babel incident. But the Jaredites are eventually replaced by the Mulekites who arrived around the same time as Lehi's group but in a totally different location. They descend from a man named Mulek, son of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah. We'll come back to them in a second. Among the Nephites, the line of Jacob ends up becoming the record keepers, with the history of the Nephites being recorded on two sets of gold plates, known as the small plates and the large plates. Remember that because we'll be coming back to it. So, after Jacob, these records are kept and maintained by his son Enos, then Jerem, then Omni, and so forth. Eventually, though, the Nephites become as wicked as the Lamanites. So a group of righteous Nephites leave and settle in a place called Zarahemla, which happens to be where the Mulekites had been living. The two groups end up merging and a Nephite named Mosiah is made king. Mosiah is followed by his son Benjamin who inherits both the records of the Nephites as well as the records of the earlier Jaredites. Meanwhile, a group of Nephites return to their original land, near the Lamanites. There a man named Noah becomes king. But unlike King Benjamin, Noah is a very wicked king, therefore a prophet named Abinadi urges Noah to repent and passes along the message that Jesus Christ would soon appear on earth. Noah, however, kills Abinadi and only one person ends up believing in what Abinadi had said. That man is Alma the Elder. Alma escapes from Noah and establishes the Church of Jesus Christ, eventually leading a group that merges back with the Nephites at Zarahemla. King Benjamin is followed by King Messiah II. Messiah II has four sons but none of them wanted to be king. Instead, they decide to dedicate their lives to missionary work among the Lamanites. Thus, a period begins where the Nephites are ruled by judges, starting with Alma the Younger. At this point, it is Alma's line that takes over the role of record keeper. Eventually, though, the Nephites and Lamanites merge and in 34 AD, after having lived and died over in Judea, Jesus appears in the Americas, as promised. Like in Judea, he chooses 12 disciples, three of whom are Nephi III, Timothy and Nephi the IV. A period of peace begins which lasts for about 200 years. But eventually, the people divide into two groups yet again, with the unbelievers calling themselves Lamanites and the righteous calling themselves Nephites. But after some more time, even the majority of the Nephites become unbelieving as well. There's several final battles between the Nephites and the Lamanites, but in the end, the Nephites are completely destroyed, around the year 485 AD. But before this happens, the records of the Nephites were passed on to a Nephite commander named Mormon who then creates an abridged copy of the large plates. The last Nephite ends up being Moroni, son of Mormon. He takes the small plates, together with the abridgment that his father made of the large plates makes a few funnel additions, adds an abridgment of the much earlier Jaredite plates, and then buries the whole thing in a secret location. And that's how the story ends. Well, at least until the year 1823, which was when a man named Joseph Smith claims that he was visited by an angel named Moroni and shown the location of the plates. But before I delve into that part of the story, I want to mention two things. First, although Mormons used to claim that all Native Americans today are the direct descendants of the Lamanites, nowadays, they tend to claim that only some are. In other words, most Mormons now believe that their scriptures only tell a small portion of what happened in the pre-Columbian Americas, and that there were likely other groups as well, such as those who arrived by way of the Bering Land Bridge. Second, you might be wondering, where in the Americas do Mormons claim that all of this took place? Well, there's no definitive answer to that. According to the Book of Mormon, the geography looked something like this. The most notable feature being a narrow strip of land separating two land masses. The earliest assumption was that the narrow strip of land was Panama and that the story was spread out over the entirety of North and South America. However, nowadays, most adhere to some sort of limited geography model with the story being set either here, near Mexico, or here, near the Great Lakes. Although, there's several other theories as well, including one in which the whole thing is set in Malaysia instead of the Americas. But back to Joseph Smith. Smith grew up on a farm in upstate New York in the early 1800s. The United States was a very young country at that point and was experiencing what is known as the Second Great Awakening, a time when many people were attempting to revitalize Christianity. As a teenager, Smith earned money as both a treasure hunter and a scryer. A scryer is someone who looks into a special stone in order to receive supernatural knowledge. Supposedly in 1823, at the age of 17, Smith did find a treasure with the help of an angel named Moroni. That treasure was the Golden Plates and supposedly they looked something like this. According to Mormons, they were found on this hill about 25 miles southeast of Rochester. But it wasn't until 1828, at the age of 22, that Smith began to translate the plates by staring into his hat using either a special stone or a special pair of glasses. By 1830, the manuscript was finished and the book was made available for sale. Let me now describe to you how the Book of Mormon is arranged. Like the Bible, it is divided into smaller books, each of which are further divided into chapters and verses. There are 15 books in total. All of the names of the books are based on characters that we've already discussed when we went through the family tree chart. So for example, according to Mormons, the first two books were primarily written by Nephi, son of Lehi, with perhaps some editing done by later record keepers. Mormon tradition also holds that the first six books are based on the small plates, whereas these six books are based on the large plates, which were later abridged by the prophet Mormon. The small book in between, called Words of Mormon, is a note by the prophet Mormon explaining the difference between the two sets of plates. Near the end is the Book of Ether, which is a summary of the earlier Jaredite records that were added by Moroni. And then, of course, last comes the Book of Moroni because he's the one who did the final compiling and then buried the whole thing. Now, an interesting thing happened when Joseph Smith was working on the Book of Mormon. His helper lost the first 116 pages. One theory is that the Book of Mormon was originally supposed to look like this, with the lost 116 pages being a section of the large plates called the Book of Lehi. According to this theory, the six books based on the small plates were originally supposed to be placed at the end, as sort of an appendix, since they cover the same period that the Lost Book of Lehi supposedly covered. So, what some Mormons believe is that after the lost 116 pages incident, Smith continued with Mosiah first and then completed 1 Nephi to Omni last. However, he placed these final six books at the beginning in order to make the whole thing flow more chronologically. This is probably a good time for me to switch from telling you what the faith-based view of the Book of Mormon is to what the secular academic view is. Because from a critical point of view, the whole small plates, large plates thing seems like a good way to make up for the fact that Smith's helper lost the first 116 pages. Think about it for a second. If Smith was creating the whole thing himself and only claiming that he was transcribing an ancient text, the missing 116 pages posed a major problem. You see, if he were to have quote unquote retranscribed those pages, he probably would have ended up using different words. And then what if those original 116 pages suddenly turned up? The two versions could then be compared, and if they didn't match up, he'd be proven a fraud. So, in order to avoid this, Smith simply came up with the idea of a second set of plates that told the same story in a slightly different way. But that's not the only problem. There's also the fact that nothing in the Book of Mormon can be confirmed using standard historical methods, nor can it be confirmed through DNA studies, linguistics, or archaeology. Last week on this channel, I went through a timeline of the pre-Columbian Americas. None of it matches with the story told in the Book of Mormon and we don't even have the golden plates to examine. Conveniently, Smith gave those back to the angel Moroni and all of the witnesses who claimed to have seen them were either family members or individuals involved in the early Mormon movement. We do, however, have an authentic ancient Egyptian papyrus that was once owned by Joseph Smith and claimed by him to be an account written by the biblical Abraham. However, when the document was refound and retranslated by experts during the 20th century, it was found to be a typical ancient Egyptian funerary text, written during the Ptolemaic era for a priest named Hor, telling him how to navigate the afterlife. Nothing at all to do with Abraham or any other biblical character. In the videos that I made about the Bible and the Quran, I pointed out that religious writings often tell us more about the time during which they were written than they do about the time during which they were set. For example, the Book of Daniel tells us a lot about the Maccabean period, even though it was set in the Babylonian period. And the Quran gives us a wonderful snapshot of the kind of stories that were floating around in the Middle East during the 7th century CE, even though it is supposed to be a universal book for all time. In a similar manner, the Book of Mormon actually tells us a lot about the United States in the early 19th century, even though the story is set in the ancient Americas. Like I said earlier, the United States was a very young country in the early 1800s and it was a time of intense religious revival and spiritual experimentation. There would soon be an explosion of historical and scientific discoveries, but most of those hadn't happened yet. So, basically, you had a bunch of really religious people in a brand new country that happened to be on the other side of the planet to where all those stories from their beloved religion had taken place. Therefore, it's not hard to imagine that people would have been very pleased to discover that Jesus had been active on the American continents as well. And it's also not hard to believe that a down-on-his-luck, treasure-hunting guy like Joseph Smith might choose to give people what they wanted by claiming to have finally found some important treasure. But how could a farm boy with very little education come up with a story as complex as the Book of Mormon? Similar questions are often asked about Muhammad as well. How could Muhammad, being illiterate, have produced a work as beautiful and complex as the Quran? Many people have noticed the similarities between the claimed origin of the Quran and the claimed origin of the Book of Mormon. Both involve angels, both involve just one man receiving the revelation, and both involve the idea that Christianity has taken the wrong path. Obviously, there are a lot of important differences, but I find the similarities quite interesting. Here's something to consider. Just because someone hasn't had much formal education or just because they are unable to read and write, it doesn't necessarily mean that they lack intelligence or creativity. Studies of oral cultures have shown that people with lower literacy actually have much better memories. One of the few books that Joseph Smith was able to read, and read a lot, as a kid was the King James Bible. So, it's not at all strange that he ended up producing a book that was very similar in style. Plus, he had the help of several other, more well-read, people. But did all that content and world creation come from their own heads? In my video about the Quran, we looked at some of the sources that Muhammad might have used. So, now, let's look at some of the sources that Joseph Smith and his helpers might have used. In addition to the King James Bible, there are two other sources that are mentioned most often. The first is an unpublished novel by a man named Solomon Spalding about a group of Romans who were blown off course and ended up in the Americas in the 4th century. The novel is written as if someone found a hidden record, written by these Romans, and simply published it. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Some claim that a close associate of Joseph Smith's named Sidney Rignan stole the manuscript for Spalding's novel and used it to help create the Book of Mormon. This theory goes all the way back to 1834, just four years after the Book of Mormon was published and for decades it was the leading theory among non-Mormon historians when it came to explaining how the Book of Mormon came to be. Currently, Oberlin College in Ohio has a copy of a manuscript in Spaulding's handwriting that many think is the novel in question. The similarities between it and the Book of Mormon are superficial, though, and therefore, the idea of direct plagiarism is no longer supported by most historians. The second source is a book called View of the Hebrews, published in 1823 a pastor named Ethan Smith. This book argues that the Native Americans are the direct descendants of the lost 10 tribes of Israel, a similar idea to the one found in the Book of Mormon. Remember, in the Book of Mormon, Lehi is said to have been from the tribe of Manasseh and Ishmael from the tribe of Ephraim. This would make the Nephites and the Lamanites the direct descendants of at least these two tribes. That there was some sort of connection between the Native Americans and the ancient Israelites was actually a very common belief in the US during the early 1800s, partly because excavations of the earlier mound-building civilizations, which I discussed last week, were being done, leading to much speculation. The possibility that Ethan Smith's book View of the Hebrews influenced the Book of Mormon is strengthened by the fact that Oliver Cowdery, who was Joseph Smith's main scribe, had previously been a member of Ethan Smith's church. So even if Joseph Smith did not copy directly from the book, it is certainly possible, if not probable, that he was aware of it and got some of his ideas from it. There were several other books published in the early 1800s that have some striking similarities to the Book of Mormon as well. For example, there's one that involves the last archivist of Atlantis and another one that uses a King James style to describe the War of 1812. So, like I said earlier, the Book of Mormon is basically a snapshot of the various themes, ideas, and writing styles that were common during the very romantic early days of the United States. Personally, I think there is a strong case to be made that the Book of Mormon should be studied as important American literature rather than just be dismissed as a fringe religious text. So, it's been almost 200 years since Joseph Smith was supposedly visited by the angel Moroni. A lot of Mormon history occurred during these 200 years, including Joseph Smith's murder, the settling of Utah, and many decades during which polygamy was allowed in the church. But rather than go through all of that, I want to end by talking briefly about what Mormonism looks like today. For one thing, there are several different types of Mormons. Most belong to the main Mormon denomination, known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or LDS for short. LDS members tend to be quite conservative, but unlike in the early decades of Mormonism, they are fully integrated into the larger American society. Nowadays, the LDS is the fourth largest religious group in the United States, after Catholics, Baptists, and Methodists, and worldwide there are more LDS members than there are Jews. But there are several, albeit much smaller, Mormon denominations as well, such as the Community of Christ, formerly known as the Reorganized Church, or RLDS. This group is more progressive, supporting gay marriage, for example. Then of course, there are the extremist Mormon groups that still practice polygamy such as the FLDS cult led by Warren Jeffs. Jeffs is currently in prison for aggravated sexual assault against one of his quote-unquote wives who was a mere 12 years old. Cultural Mormonism is even starting to become a thing. This is because nowadays, there are many people who grew up in the religion, abandoned it as an adult, but still hold a certain fondness for the stories that they were taught in their youth. For those in this group, I'd recommend the book An Insider's View of Mormon Origins by Grant Palmer. In it, Palmer suggests that Joseph Smith may have originally meant for the Book of Mormon to serve as allegories only and only later decided to teach it as literal history because it was so successful at winning converts. Okay, so that was a look at the Book of Mormon, a brief summary of its family tree and some possible sources for its origin. Let me know in the comments what other religious groups you'd like to see me cover in the future. As always, thanks for watching.